Welcome to the 53rd episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you access to forward-thinking research, events, and our analysts, so you can capitalize on the new consumer economy. Learn more at loosethreads.com membership. We also have a newsletter called Ripcord that highlights one important development each week and helps you escape the noise. Learn more at loosethreads.com ripcord. Joining me today is Alejandro Shaheen, the founder of Mott & Bow, a direct-to-consumer denim brand injecting some much-needed value into the denim market. Alejandro started the company after realizing the opportunity to undercut traditional wholesale brands on price while delivering better quality. It's really important how you're perceived and what you tell your customer. But at the core, it is a delivery on a great product at a great price. We had a good talk about the brand's founding, its product strategy, and how it's building Affinity Online. Here's my talk with Alejandro Shahi. Why don't we start talking a bit about your background and then we can kind of work our way up from there to Mott Bao existing. So I had the advantage of growing up in a family that was very involved in textiles, specifically in jeans and in shirting. I came to the States to study both undergrad and grad. And in the few years in, in the graduate program, I started seeing a lot of direct-to-consumer brands. So I said, even though the gene market is saturated, there is an opportunity to provide a value proposition and start a gene brand. And that's how Modern Bao got started. And so what were you kind of observing when you started to look? Like, what was the first brand you saw? Like, what was interesting? What was not interesting? Like, how did that observation process go? The two brands I remember were Bonobos and Warby Parker. Bonobos was the first one, 2007. And it was really just an e-com play, not a value proposition play. If you looked at their pricing, it was exactly as any others. But they were doing nice customer service. They owned the entire chain. And then when you saw Warby Parker, it was a true value proposition. You were getting something about a quarter of a price. So I modeled after those two. What was like the first thing you did? You were kind of observing these brands. What was the beginning, I guess? Yeah, so it was my last semester in the MBA program. I had tried another startup, which failed because the revenue stream was too far down the line. It was on the affiliate marketing play. So I saw, obviously, the expertise I had in clothing and how important that is, having a competitive advantage, and then looking at the marketplace and not realizing that there is a $100 gene out there that's good quality. So when I decided to start, I'm like, okay, let's do it. I want to go pure e-commerce. Let me just put all the pieces together, which is fabric suppliers, getting the e-com play, getting the shipping play. That was essentially it. How did you land on 100? Where did that come from that that was the place you needed to be? Because... On average, every premium jeans started at 200 bucks. The true... Why? Because there are three middlemen and each one marks it 100% on average from the time the manufacturer to the consumer. So who are those middlemen? So you have the manufacturer, you have the wholesaler, retailer, and then it goes to the consumer. And at the end, the consumer is the one who's overpaying for all those inefficiencies in the supply chain. And if you looked at the denim market, all the incumbents were pre-e-commerce era. So yeah, back in the day, if you wanted to start a denim brand, like you really had to have a distribution play and those connections. In these days, not really. Just deliver a good product 
offer it at a perceived value that is higher than what the consumers felt they were paying for it. And that surplus was going to allow the brand to expand on word of mouth. So what were some of those brands that you're like, okay, they're doing this well, but it's on an old value chain? AG, which is Adriano Goldschmidt, Seven, Acne Studios. Those are one of the f- some of the few. Hudson Jeans, I can go on, Page, ton of brands. Why have they continued as they are? It's impossible for them to remove themselves from the distribution model that made them successful. Like, so imagine, put it in AG's case or any brand. They're selling at 200 bucks. What would it take for them to sell at 100 bucks? They could do it in their e-commerce store and they're making a lot of money in their e-commerce store because it's a huge margin, but they couldn't price that same product and have the retailers price it at 200 bucks. They just be discontinued. Does part of it though have to do with where the brand wants to sit perception or kind of category wise? I don't think that's a reason. It's just, you can't go back once you've built your brand on that distribution model. Like, yeah. And they were premium and that was the price that needed to come for them to have enough of a marketing budget to place the nice fabrics that needed to come in the jeans and to grow. So that was just the pricing structure as it was before. You couldn't do it at a better price. I guess what's interesting to me is did they want to, right? Because Acne makes $300 jeans now, right? Part of me would say they have no interest in selling for 100 because it would undercut all the perception. Like, do you think it's really cost plus pricing or you think those are, I would assume Acne jeans are value priced at this point because it's Acne, you know? And that's brand perceived value. Like one of the best perceptions of value is pricing. Right. So, yeah, nowadays they they wouldn't move pricing, but back in the day, a brand that was selling at 500 bucks was more of that price play, but at minimum you had to sell at $200 to deliver that type of product. There okay. was no other way around it. So that was what you saw as the floor basically. Whether yeah. whether it was priced beyond that because of the brand is luxurious or contemporary, in the old distribution model, there was no way to go below 200. That's correct. Okay. And then I assume the Levi's that are, you know, 75 bucks, those were just lesser fabrics and sewing and all of that. Yeah. I can't remember the exact percentage, but fabric is the highest percentage of the cost of the good. So you just reduce the price per meter of the fabric. And there's a ton of denim suppliers out there. And that's how you get different price points. But you said there are only five good ones. Typically five that are extremely well-known and used by a lot of these premium brands. So if we go back to the beginning, then you had some expertise or kind of exposure to this from kind of the family business. It sounds like you started with the fabric piece and then how did the brand come to fruition? How did the product and the site, like let's talk about how all the pieces kind of came together and then we can talk about the launch. Fit is one of the other components that you need to get right. So I hired a specialist that was used to U.S. demographic body types to help us interpret and do correctly because our expertise was in the Central American market. So we developed the fit. It takes a lot of prototypes. I think it took us like 17 protos uh, to finally get it right. Once I chose a fabric and we had fit, then we gave it to the team in Honduras, who's very good because why denim is so hard is If you buy one fabric that has 30% stretch and the other one that has 15% stretch and the other one that has no percent stretch, you can't use the same pattern because they're going to stretch differently. And not only that, in washing, if I use the same fabric and wash it 
just the rinse wash, which is a dark one, and then bleach the other one to make it lighter, the shrinkages are completely different. So you need to adapt right. all those so that at the end, the consumer gets the final measurement he wants and needs. So we played a lot with that and made sure that the washes we were launching at the beginning and the fabrics were going to be very consistent. After that, I started working with a branding expert to give it a name and to define the essence, the personality on how we wanted to talk to the consumer and what was it going to be? What was the story that was going to make us different? So we started putting those pieces together. And so I spent maybe the first six months just focused on product and very little on the marketing and the launch strategy, which was a huge, I wouldn't say a huge mistake, but I could have done better at the beginning had I focused on the go-to market strategy. At the end, I was happy the product came very good because that allows word of mouth to happen when a customer is happy. Like a lot of good people can market a bad product, but then for word of mouth to happen, it's very tough in that regard. Yeah. Those were the early days. And just talking about the mistakes I made in, in go to market, for example, I didn't have a 3PL to start. I took 2000 jeans and I placed them in my room. I put a UPS printer in there. I didn't even know about PR at the time. So I'm like, how do I start moving that? And then I started thinking about ways and did a Kickstarter, slow one. But little by little, we started figuring out. I moved the jeans out of my apartment to a 3PL. We started seeing what worked, putting more money in that. And that was a little bit of the beginning stages. You said before, you know, you half regrettably spent all this time in the product for the first six months. Why did you do that? Was that just intuition or like what was the rationalization at the time, which is, okay, we need to make, you know, this thing as best as possible. Then the other stuff will come. It was me wanting to be happy with the product we put out there. And I knew if I was happy, then customers were going to be happy. That was the essence of it. And I knew that if I wanted growth, the product just needed to be exceptionally well. So the price they're paying is 100 bucks, but I wanted their perceived value to be at 200 bucks. And if I achieved that, I knew I could get the growth via word of mouth. Talk more about the word of mouth piece in terms of was that going to be you know the primary marketing strategy? Where did that channel sit in your mind? Mistakenly, I thought that was going to be the primary one. <laughs> I, I You're just not thought, alone. <laughs> I just thought build it and and they'll come. Yeah. And wow, is that a mistake? Like I learned quickly. Uh, there were days at the beginning. I remember after the launch, there were days between zero to two sales, and I'm, I woke up surrounded with jeans, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And and those are just frustrations that you start learning and tackling each day and just looking at how to improve and make it grow. Talk about the Kickstarter in terms of where did that come from? Why did you do it? And then how did it go? The reason I did a Kickstarter was because we were delayed in our website by about a month. So I'm like, okay, I already have 2000 jeans here. I'm just not going to sit here. So I called a friend, said, let's do a video. Didn't do a lot of research on Kickstarter. Just put it out like six days after. And it sold, I think, like $27,000, which is not bad, but it was a missed opportunity, especially after seeing big Kickstarters go for 200, 400K, and nowadays 4 million. But it was the starting point. Did you deliver the stuff like the next week? Like, was that like the fastest Kickstarter delivery? <laughs> Essentially, it was like within two weeks, a yeah. product was at customers' houses. So that was the first time releasing the product into the wild, basically. Indeed. And how did that go? Like, what were some of the initial reactions? People love the product, but mostly it was friends and certain relatives 
that were purchasing it. And so the question was, how do you get out of that circle? And so some of the early successes we had and kind of luck factors, uh, we got featured on one of the PR sites featured us. And that's when I really saw the impact that PR could have uh, on a single day. I remember in the early days, it was like 50 orders. Then CNBC happened. That was like 150 orders. And then we started evolving. And so that was when press started to become a more kind of relevant tool. It was irrelevant, but the easier press you can get is around launch. And I had already lost that opportunity. So it wasn't going to be easy to be had. It was part of the strategy, but it wasn't the only strategy. I feel too many people just bank on getting press. And then when they fail, they're like, oh, I haven't gotten the press. That's what it gave me success. That's not entirely true. Press is a small part of the strategy. It's going to help you build that initial mass. But after that, it's all on the team. Yeah. I remember when we were running our mentor line, we had the same conception, which is, oh, press will equal sales. And I think we realized, oh, it's really good for the perception piece. But if you try and predicate a brand sales entirely off of press, you will become very frustrated very quickly because you can't control it. Right. So talking about the controlling aspect, then we started learning about native advertising and how that was very similar to press because it was that outlet speaking to the customers who already had trust in them, and you had in a small little sector presented by Modern Bow, and you could control your own faith on when you wanted the placements. So stuff like that just started evolving little by little. So you had the Kickstarter, went okay, put the product in people's hands, did the website end up launching a month after? Like what kind of happened after that? Yeah, I think the website launched almost when the Kickstarter ended. Okay. Or maybe a week or two, I can't remember, but very close. And then we were focusing on moving traffic to our site, which was not an easy task at the beginning. Talk about some of the ups and downs of that. The first six months were really tough. I remember one of my strategies at the time had become contact friends who were in, call it Facebook, LinkedIn, and do trunk shows there. So they would host me at a happy hour and I bring in a suitcase with 50 jeans and those were great days. Remember I said I had between zero to two sales for the first two, three months on any given day. So when I went to those shows, it was like maybe 15, 20 sales. So I was happy and that was building volume, but that wasn't scalable. I tried making it a scalable, but it wasn't. But in reality, at the beginning, a lot of things that you're going to do are not scalable. A lot of people say get to the first million and then worry about scalability. And so you tried this trunk show like model, were there any other experiments you ran in terms of how do you get the volume up? Online, uh, native started working, referral program. It was a little bit of everything. Facebook at the time, email, we started capturing a lot and we saw the importance of that channel and the beauty. So it was just a lot of things that started clicking. I would say like after the seven month mark, things started evolving. What did you kind of start to see or what started to happen that you're like, oh, you know, this is picking up? Yeah, so I started to bring in people, pick and pack, and obviously it wasn't an operation that you could scale. Uh, I had rented the self-storages and stuff like that, so that wasn't scalable. I moved it to a 3PL, and then I just started really focusing on the marketing side, making the website more efficient. That way, when we spent money on digital marketing, it was more efficient conversion-wise, and just improving the funnel overall. And was this just you at the time? Yeah, I'd say up till maybe at the year mark, I made my first hire or 10 month mark, which was our head of customer service right now. And 
maybe uh, 14 months in, I made the second hire, which was director of acquisition. That way we could have a person completely dedicated to it. What was it like getting you know, this thing to a year with being the full sole employee? Tough but rewarding. You would do a little bit of everything. Wherever you saw the more value is where you would push. But as you know, the first year is, is just tough and long hours, but it's enjoyable. You don't feel like it was a Sunday or a Monday. At the beginning, it's, you're so naive, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, and you have to be, I think, because a reasonable person that says this is what you're going to go through is like, no, like it doesn't make sense. And I don't know how you evolved from that stage to having a scalable business. And so the business started men's, right? Is it still men's today? No, okay. we, after two years in, we launched women's. We have the expertise in jeans, like very good expertise. So it was a natural transition and women buy more clothing than men. So that was the idea behind. And so what we've become is not only a jean supplier now, but we look at the opportunities where consumers are overpaying for premium staples in clothing. So not only did we go after women's jeans, but now we launched men's button down shirts specifically jeans at the beginning. And then we went into Oxford's, which is a staple in every closet. So the Oxford was the first shirting you yes. did for men's. Gotcha. Correct. Yeah. And so these are highly competitive spaces. What was the thinking or the audacity to be like, okay, you know, we have something new to offer here and you know, we think we can build a brand around this because there's not a shortage of general product, right? In jeans, I think it's very clear because of that expertise. I feel that the expertise on the supply side I grew up with gives us the ability to move into other product categories efficiently. I disintermediate the supply chain. Essentially, I buy the fabric from the Italian fabric supplier, place it in the Moroccan cut, make, and trim, who essentially just sews the shirt and builds it. And so we're placing each part into each supplier and just allowing them to mark up for that specific price. Usually when you give it to a manufacturer, you say, okay, so you hold all the risk for the fabric. All that adds up little by little. So what we're doing is going into that and to minimize the risk, we're going after staples. That's why when you see us go into product categories, we don't go crazy in different colors or 10 different fits because that just becomes very difficult to manage. And then when you go into lower quantity of SKUs and you can get more volume because you're making the suppliers more efficient. Think of the fabric supplier. If you just ask for one fabric and five colors instead of X different fabrics in smaller quantities, it's just economies of scale. So we've done that little by little and really focused on what makes each product premium. I think growing too fast is a problem that's happened to a lot of brands that have one great unique product and then they say, okay, so I have all these customers, let's add 15 product categories. And they go to a big sourcing supplier, for example, Lee and Fung. And they just say, okay, we'll develop a collection. You choose what you want and don't want. But then you lose the core of the value. There's a lot of middlemen in there. And then you just have a big collection. But each product is not unique as the first one was or there's not that attention to detail that made it successful so we're going slowly but finding what makes each product premium where the volume is and then going after one of those we've talked kind of up to i guess mid kind of 2014 
if you were to kind of summarize the year of 2015 and then we can work to 2016 and then the present kind of what was, I guess, year two like? So second year was interesting. That's when I realized the business was going to be successful. I was out of the infant stage and now we were trying to make it scale efficiently. What, what told you it would I reached get revenue marks that were, were nice marks. So that's what felt good. And, and I remember at the first year, I was trying to raise VC money. I came up with these projections on how to spend money. And after a year, which I started hitting nice revenue numbers and I could sustain the business without outside money, then I stopped focusing on that. And thankfully, I didn't raise uh, money at the time because that would have put pressure on top line growth without making it efficient, which I think would have generated a problem for us and just focused on growing the business efficiently. So we made hard decisions at the time. I remember we were growing, call it a year and a half after, but I was seeing shipping costs be extremely high. And and in reality, one of the bigger problems was people that were just fully returning. And that was a big cost. So it was either we raised prices and penalized the whole amount or just For example, put a restocking fee, a $5 restocking fee, if customers returned and didn't keep anything. It's decisions you need to make. They're hard. Like the easiest would just have been to leave it alone. But that was 2015. And and what was during that year kind of, what did the channel mix evolve to in terms of where was the effort and then where were, were the results? The three big ones we have, the paid ones, were native advertising, Facebook, and podcast. We had gotten early in the podcast game and obviously our spend wasn't huge. It was way cheaper yeah. than it was now. And you could find ones that you had success and it was just figuring out the cadence. Yeah. Those were the big three channels. I regret not putting more effort into Facebook at the time because it would have been a faster scalability. And then that's what we started figuring out in 2016 if we're gotcha. going into that year. Yeah. So talk a bit about kind of 2016 and where the business was so i moved fulfillment centers again so from my apartment to a first fulfillment center then the business had grown where shipping rate volume was very important so we went to a bigger fulfillment center and just a lot of growth was happening on the digital side the team had grown i think at that time 2016 maybe we were like at seven so it was nice to see we could uh, share responsibilities and push in different directions. And then Facebook was just the channel that you could continue pushing money efficiently and see the outcome, prospecting, retargeting, re-engagement, and scaling podcasts, for example, or scaling native takes a lot of man-hour efforts, whereas you find something that works in Facebook and you just put more budget towards it. So that was very important. Have you seen changes in the overall kind of brand denim landscape from since you started until today? I remember two brands launched at the same time, plus or minus, call it four or five months. Those brands no longer exist. So Uh, yes, it's changed. (laughs) Yes. And there's a few others that have popped up, but we believe that truly the product we're offering at the price is not out there in the market. And we're doing the same for other product categories that we're getting into. So one of the really interesting questions for me with these premium products at a more affordable price point was how do you convey that quality online? And 
I'm curious, like what kind of experiments or, or lessons were learned about how do we convey the value of this without charging for what people are used to? That's the question we try answering every day on and how to get better. Because you do it visually, but people can't confirm until they see that product at hand. So we come up with ways, for example, on the Tryon program, which I adapted. We talked about Warby Parkers, but I also looked at Sapples back in the day. One of the bigger frictions in denim is the sizing. There's so much in vanity sizing. So we said, okay, let's do this Tryon program and see how it affects it. And it's been a positive effect for us. One of the reasons some of these other brands that we talked about that started at the same time had issues is because making jeans is hard. So it's not like I just came up and say, oh, I want to do a jean brand and let's start it. I had the expertise and the competitive advantage. So the quality of the product has been there. And that's how you get a lot of organic traffic and people talking about the product. Like there's so much you can do with paid, uh, but you really need to see that organic growth and that repeat purchase rate. Has the business existed entirely online or have there been kind of offline experiments as well? I tried two offline experiments and with very low success. And I realized that the effort it takes to make something successful in retail, it's time consuming. And I, as a team and as a brand, we better spent that growing online with more expertise in what we do and adding product categories. And then once we feel a plateau has been reached, then we'll look at adding a few retail spaces, maybe three, four years down the line in highly concentrated urban areas. So I think the most yelled about denim development over, over the last few months has been Everlane coming in at denim. I believe it's at $69 price point. Yep. They've been working on it forever, according to them. What are your, I guess, initial thoughts maybe as a potential customer and then, you know, change your hat to as a brand owner playing in the space about what they're working on? I think the Everlane has done a tremendous job overall, but I feel it's different price point categories. And that's what you're looking at, different quality factors. And consumers will be able to tell, but it depends if that's what you're going after. From the business side, I think they already have the scale and the volume to just continue adding other product category lines. So even if it doesn't represent something that big for them, it's still going to be something easy to maintain. And that's what happens to a lot of brands. Once they reach that scale, it's another product category to bring in revenue. So the jeans are $30 less than yours. How big of a difference is that in terms of quality? The fabric quality is not comparable. And that's what a consumer will be able to tell. How many denim brands are there that sell $60, $70 jeans? There's just a sea of them. I don't see as a competition as other direct-to-consumer brands. Look at the size of all those put together, and they represent a very little pie. I think the focus is on the incumbents who are not delivering the value proposition or because of the way they've reached the market. When we put a product at the same price point, a consumer immediately says, I choose this brand and the direct-to-consumer brand per se if they have the right product because it's so much better in perceived value. Yep. So I'm curious because you mentioned in the beginning that you were very kind of product focused early on. The brand piece kind of came a little slower or a little bit later. What has the evolution been on the brand building side in terms of, I guess, its importance, how it resonates, how you kind of articulate it? How has that evolved over the last, you know, four years? It's really important how you're perceived and what you tell your customer. And we always try to make it better 
And I don't think we're there yet where we have the true essence. And that's something we're working on. And, and it's because we're young. We've moved from denim to other product categories. But at the core, it is a delivery on a great product at a great price. I think one, for guys, one of the biggest problems with denim is just when it rips after a certain amount of time. Different companies deal with this differently, right? Like APC takes their jeans back and, and repairs them or you can resell them. Some people get them fixed. Could you ever build like a denim brand with like a lifetime, like rip-free warranty? That's a tough one. Whoever tries is, I think, <laughs> denim by itself is very durable. Call it average lifespan around two, three years. So tackling that, I think a few brands do it like not lifetime warranty, but they have repair shops like you mentioned. The reality is if you have a thinner fabric, it's going to rip out faster than if you have a thicker fabric. Yeah. For example, we range in weights in our jeans from, call it, let's talk about men's, which have more of this problem than women's, from 9.5 ounce to 14 ounce. So a 14 ounce has that ability to endure the wear a little bit more. But going back to your point, it's hard to take responsibility because you don't know what wear and tear that specific person put it through. So going back to your original thought on lifetime warranty, I've seen a few companies fail in the past few years because they were doing those guarantees. And I'm guessing a lot of people were claiming them and not specifically on the gene area, but in other products. And then so what happens after the company fails, there's no lifetime warranty anymore. But as a brand owner who makes denim, what's the balance there, right, between foreverness and realism? It's a tough balance being on both sides. Yeah. Like you want a product that has the endurance that is above expected value from the market. What that is is different to every person. Like I find a jean I really love when I'm prototyping jeans. And I'll wear that jean straight, like days on. So it depends if you wear it at that frequency versus someone wearing a jean every week or every three weeks. It, it's really variable. Talk about why that matters. Some people have explained it to me as, you know, fabric is like a rubber band in a way. At least, I don't know if that's true or not, but at least they said if you wear it every day, you're like stretching it and stretching it and stretching it, which is if you wear it, you know, twice a week or every other day, it gives time to recover. Is that true? So fabric does recover. Think of your, yeah, you're stretching something out. And then once you stop stretching it, which is when you take it off, it bounces back. But it's just traditional wear and tear. Like if you use an object a ton, it's going to have more fading and more wear. Think of you sitting on like concrete or something outside. Like the more you sit on that with a jean, the more it's going to get faded and distressed in that area. And it's going to rip eventually. What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned over the existence of the company? Yeah, the most expensive lesson is my first six months. The way I ran the business, looking at doing fulfillment in-house and just understanding the try-on program, how that worked, how many people returned it versus didn't returning. And that's just expensive because of the time I spent in it. But it's the cheapest learning because... As the business scaled, I couldn't be BS'd into one thing or the other. I knew the operation in and out. And then what about cheap lesson? There's no shortcuts. That's the cheapest lesson and multiple ways. Like there's no magic bullet. It's just things building with momentum as you do more things right. 
in almost everything we we tried like there wasn't for example a marketing strategy that was just gonna make it work it's a little bit of everything yeah just incremental baby steps on the home try on piece so you know jack threads went bankrupt doing this thing how did you architect it or how did you want to architect it where it would actually you know provide actual value and not you know be a, a liability it just came out of sense in the friction that the customers would have like if i would have done it incorrectly i would have allowed instead of an extra pair of jeans maybe two jeans and that would have been complicated because you lose that inventory which is out in progress and you can't sell it but a customer really knows between usually two sizes so i think they tried finding a silver bullet the previous company you mentioned and they tried going big and there's operational complications with that not only in the amount of inventory you're losing that you can't sell at the time let's say you order 10 items and you only keep one but the reverse logistics on handling that costs rise it's a different ball game and then as you look kind of into the future what are you most excited about for what's on the horizon all the new product categories we're going into little by little but i think we're truly taking our time it takes us an average call it 15 months from the time we start working on a product to when we fully launch it because there's only one time to make the right first impression that's how we tackle the product so yeah could i launch this product sooner i could but we're taking our time to do it correctly and is the idea that because these are you know essential core pieces you know there's no seasonal turnaround that you need to move with the trend or anything that's correct cool and then where's the name from two new york streets modern bowery so a lot of brands put like new york below we like the relation with the city and it had no issues with trademark domain name and i heard that from a few other founders and it's the reality of what you don't want to get into a legal battle when you're starting out small so you try finding something that's new that's catchy and and obviously we tested it with friends and stuff like that very cool awesome man thanks for talking thank you for having me thanks for listening to the loose threads podcast sign up for ripcord at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on itunes we always appreciate it thanks to george ray jr for editing this episode I enjoyed talking with Alejandro about the ups and downs of building a brand where the barrier of entry is low, but the barriers to success are high. Once profitability is in sight, however, expanding and evolving only gets easier. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Eliza Brook of Racked, Karen Young of WeShave, and Ryan Babenzine of Greats. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.